So what is love? <clears throat> what is love? Let me bring the side lights. There we go. <clears throat> what is love? That's just a little picture of maybe some things that we can do for love for our spouse. Last Sunday, we began our study of love in 1 Corinthians. And we began by looking at the three Greek words, three of the Greek words that mean love. Eros, which is physical or sensual love. Phileo, which is brotherly love or platonic love. And agape, which is selfless love, sacrificial love, or love for those that don't deserve our love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the word used for love is agape. It's selfless love. It's the, the, the love that a husband expresses when he decides to vacuum and clean up and do whatever needs to be done for his spouse. It's the word that's used, the kind of love that God showed to us by sending Jesus. It said God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, before we had anything together, Christ died for us. It's, it's undeserved love. That's true love, the agape love that we're talking about. Then we looked at the importance of love. We looked at the fact that the Corinthian church had all the right trappings. They were doing all the right things. They had religious activity. They had tongues and prophecy. They had great faith. They had self-sacrifice. But there was a missing ingredient in all of their good works. That missing ingredient was Love, it was love. And he said, without love, there's nothing to it. There, our great actions will have no lasting effect, make no impact. They're, they're meaningless without love, without love. Then we looked at the character of love. We looked at the first nine, <clears throat> of 15 characteristics of love. Number one was patient with people. Kindness, not envious. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, love forgives and forgets. So now we know how impossible it is to practice that kind of love, and we know that only God can produce that love in us by his Holy Spirit. So let's finish chapter 13 today. Let's finish the chapter. Today we're going to look at always, always. 1 Corinthians 13, it's on page 932 if you're looking for it in the Bible in the rack in front of you. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to read verses 6 through 13 today as we finish this chapter. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. <clears throat> now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. As we move on to the character of love, the number, number 10, you'll find this in your notes as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> number 10, 
Number 10, love does not delight in evil. Does not delight in evil. Does not celebrate evil. Or it doesn't celebrate bad news. Doesn't celebrate bad news. How many of you watched TV news this last week? Any news on TV? Uh, read a newspaper, a news magazine, read news online? Everybody in touch with the news? Most of you, how many of you can recall just one good news story? Anybody? Any good news stories? The Dodgers won in the 18th inning. That was, here <laughs> for the Dodgers, that was about it. I went to bed, I didn't see that. But you know, that's, that was a good news thing if you were for the Dodgers. We hear a lot of bad news. We hear very little good news. Why? Because bad news sells. It sells advertising, it sells papers, magazines, and website advertising. Bad news sells. It's disasters and it's dirts. Why are the tabloids so successful? Because inquiring minds want to know the dirt. In a very perverse way, our culture celebrates evil and bad news. There is some good news in our world. That doesn't mean everything is great, but at least tell us the good news and not just the bad news. But there's something perverse about human nature that likes to hear bad news about someone else, of course. Thank you. <clears throat> you know my voice is bad and somebody brings me water. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Somehow people take pleasure also in misfortune. Misfortune. The fact seems to make us more eager to hear bad news than good news. But love, on the other hand, keeps us from enjoying that perversion and keeps us from enjoying when bad things happen to other people. You know, you place this tendency against love together with jealousy, selfishness, or competition, and we can see the results. Most gossip, not all, but most gossip, centers around bad news or misfortune. Did you hear what happened to, and everybody goes, oh, what's coming next? That's what we look at. And everyone stops to listen. Or competition, if we're competitive, we view our opponent's demise with a degree of satisfaction. Now there's nothing wrong with good healthy competition, but competition is kind of like covetousness. It has two sides. Coveting, we talked about last week, uh, coveting has, is wanting what someone else has or seeing what someone else has and wishing they didn't have it. That's kind of a real insidious side of coveting. Well, competition too, the positive is I'm gonna do the best I possibly can to win or to excel or whatever that is. The negative is wanting our opponent to do the worst possible or fall or get hurt so that I can win, okay? There's a kind of a positive and negative side to competition. One delights in evil, one delights in good. Positive or negative. Love does not delight in evil. But, number 11, it rejoices with the truth. Rejoices with the truth. Now, to rejoice with the truth, one must first believe there is truth. There is truth. How many of you believe in gravity? Okay. Okay, I saw a few of you are doubting, but I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. <clears throat> how, about, how many of you believe in aging? Most of the time, that's due to gravity, but that's, that's another story. If you never attend your class, never read assigned reading, never look at your material, you will flunk the class. Pretty, pretty true, okay. 
He who sits on attack is better off. Truth. Okay. Now, since evil and truth are contrasted in verse 6, truth most likely refers to the good news or the gospel or the word of God. And there are times in our life we'd rather not hear the truth. Am I the only one? Okay. Making sure we don't want to hear the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free, but sometimes it will first make you miserable, someone once said. But the truth, the word of God, reveals things in us that need changing. And love loves the truth. Christian love has no desire to hide from the truth of God. It wants the truth to be known. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, we have an issue with biblical truth today. You know, I mean, you, you have everything you can imagine out there. It's my truth, your truth, this truth. They're, they're really, they're only facts and they're opinions, okay? Truth exists. People may deny that truth exists. Love loves truth. Millennials, teens, and 20-somethings like to talk about their beliefs, and many profess to believe in God, but not Jesus. In fact, many who are professing Christians will talk about their belief in God, but will never use the name Jesus. Why? Because God is a generic, universal, inclusive, non-offensive term that the vast majority of people believe in. Most people in America, 89%, according to the recent Gallup poll, 89% will say they believe in God, whatever he, she, or it means to them or in their truth. But Jesus, when you raise the name Jesus, which who is the truth, people are offended. It's offensive. Why? Because Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. And that means you are right and others are gasp, wrong. Because if you believe in one truth and they don't believe in that, then you're right and they're wrong and that's, that's not PC. We dare not tell anyone we're right and they're wrong because it's not PC. My truth and your truth. Love rejoices in the truth because it is only through the truth of Jesus that people can be set free. And we try all kinds of other things in, in our world to find meaning and happiness and joy and fulfillment. And it's only through Jesus because Jesus is the way to a relationship with God. We are created to have that relationship with God. That's why we are on earth. Love rejoices in the exposure of truth and falsehood, right and wrong. And we're talking about truth, all truth. We like to hear about God's love and his forgiveness, which is true. Just, just the forgiveness, and God forgives everything, and God does forgive everything if we confess our sins. But if we talk only about God's love and not God's judgment, it's only half the truth. We must not be selective in the truth. If we really love the truth, we must rejoice in truth, all of it. We can't only talk about hell, heaven, we must also warn people about hell. About God's mercy, love, patience, and forgiveness, yes, but there's also God's justice, wrath, and judgment. Rejoice in the truth, the whole counsel of God. When we hear truth, it brings conviction, and we should be happy. It's God's way of pointing us in the right direction. It's the truth that sets us free. Love rejoices in the truth. I heard a minister say once, when I preach, I want people to feel good. I want people to leave church feeling good. And my reaction was, you know, I'd love to be able to do that. But some parts of God's word, the truth, the Bible, make us feel sad, not glad. 
we're sinners. Oh, let's not talk about that. Let's just talk about forgiveness. But you know, there's part of that when we preach the word of God, sometimes it doesn't feel good because it's truth. Second Timothy four, two through four says this. This is Paul writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor. He said, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage. I'm gonna say that again, correct, rebuke, and encourage. Well, I just want the encouragement part. I don't want any correction or rebuke, you know, just, no. He says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, we don't see any of that today, do we? Oh, yeah. Just tell me what I want to hear. And if you say something I don't want to hear, I'm going to go somewhere else. Not, I don't want to talk. Truth. Love the truth. Anybody here fly? I'm, and I'm talking fly airplanes. <laughs> Anybody here? Do we have any pilots? Anybody that flies? Anybody take a flying lesson? Am I the only one that took a flying lesson? I did. I made the mistake of doing it. Um, a friend of mine went out to reserve an airplane. He said, have you ever flown? I said, no. He said, why don't you take a lesson? Um, it was about eight o'clock at night when I finally landed and, and realized that it was Judy's birthday and she's waiting for me at home. But anyway, that's, that's another story. It has nothing to do with my, my, my message. But I took a flying lesson once, just one. I got in so much trouble, I didn't know if I dared take another one. When you take flying lessons or you take pilot training, they teach you how to fly. Also, they teach you what to do when things go wrong, right? An engine stalls, an engine fails, how to crash land. It's not just how to fly. Once you're up there, anybody can fly, but the truth is you have to learn what to do when it fails. The Bible teaches us how to fly. It also teaches us what to do when we crash. That's truth, and we can love. It's the whole truth. Love rejoices in truth, the whole truth. Number 12, love puts up with anything. Love puts up with anything. That's the message. Or bears all things. It always protects. It has endurance. It endures all things. It will endure any insult, any injury, any disappointment. Love covers a multitude of sins. We will all experience injustice. We'll all experience even abuse. It doesn't, doesn't mean staying in an abusive relationship. Love may dictate getting out of an abusive relationship, but love is putting up with a lot. Love is putting up with a lot. And we may agree in concept, but how about in reality? How about in reality? There was a psychology professor who had no children of his own. And whenever he saw one of his neighbors scolding the children or disciplining them for a wrongdoing, he should say, you need to love your child. You need to love him, not punishment. Not punish him. And one hot summer afternoon, the professor was doing the repair work on the concrete driveway leading to his garage. And he was very tired. And after several hours of work, he laid down the trowel, wiped the perspiration from his forehead, and started toward the house. And then he noticed out of the corner of his eye a mischievous little neighborhood boy putting his foot into the fresh cement. He rushed over. He was angry. He grabbed him. was about to spank him severely when a neighbor leaned from the window and said, Watch it, professor, don't you remember? You must love the child. And he yelled back furiously, I do love him in the abstract, but not in the concrete. 
Sometimes we love everybody in the abstract, but you know, how do we do that? I can love my enemies, that's in the abstract, but when a friend, a family member I love does something unjust to me, somebody from my church, that's hard. The closer the relationship, the deeper the wound, which is why divorce is so painful and devastating. Love puts up with anything, it bears all things. Number 13, love always trusts, it believes all things. Now this is not childlike naivety, it's not being gullible, it trusts always. When we love, we trust, we give the, the benefit of the doubt. In other words, we think the best, not the worst. The older we get, the more of the stuff of life we experience, the more cynical we become. People disappoint us, people hurt us, people abuse us, people betray us, so we just kind of quit thinking the best, and so we just live in this suspicion world. That's why we need supernatural help to love like this. We, we desperately need God to help us love. If we're going to love like this, it's just, it's just not in us. It's not in us. Remember the Gatorade commercial that shows fluorescent fluid coming out of the pores of an athlete working out? It's a very picturesque. It's like, wow. And then the question is, is it in you? Is it in you? Asking, is Gatorade in you? Is this, is this in you? When you squeeze a lemon, what comes out? When you squeeze a lemon, what comes out? Some people say lemon juice, well that's true, but whatever's in the lemon comes out, okay? What's in it? Say, whatever you, whatever's in it is what comes out when you squeeze a lemon. When we get squeezed, what comes out? Whatever's inside. <laughs> it's not always pretty. Is it in you? Is the love coming out? Or what is it that's coming out? Is it in you? Is love in you? Is it Jesus' love? Love always trusts. 14, love always hopes. Love always hopes. It has future eyes. Love never ceases to have faith. In other words, love never, never gives up. Jim and Carol Simbola, who pastored the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City, told us the story of their daughter that was late, it was later published in one of their books. They had been in ministry for 30 years when they had, they had a middle daughter who was well-behaved. She was the model child who had never gotten in trouble, never done anything wrong. And as a teen, one day, she ran away from home. She just disappeared. She, she was gone. And she was gone for over a year. They heard from time to time that she was alive, but they could never find out anything more than that Chrissy was alive. Jim and Carol loved their daughter with the love of parents. It was the love of hope. They always hoped. They never gave up. It's the kind of love that can be extremely painful. It keeps the affection alive. It's like an exercise in pain. And one night their daughter returned, showed up on their doorstep, disheveled, dirty, ragged, and six months pregnant, ready to come home. Jim and Carol had never, ever given up hope. Their daughter later wrote a song called Everlasting Hope. 
to describe the love that never stopped hoping. Today, their daughter Chrissy is a pastor's wife with children of her own. But it's a love that always hopes. And I encourage you, don't give up hope. Maybe you need that kind of love today that is for a wayward son or daughter or a grandchild. Maybe you're hoping for a restoration of a relationship that's been long lost. This kind of love inside only by the power of the Holy Spirit always hopes. Number 15, love always perseveres. Always perseveres. It always endures through every circumstance. This verb is not passive. It's not this passive, I'm just going to put up with something. It doesn't mean to passively endure or bear, but it's active. It's a spirit that can actively conquer and overcome. Love that can conquer and overcome all things. It's a love that is incredibly powerful. That's the character of love that is written in 1 Corinthians 13. Now let's move on to the permanence of love, permanence of love. Five lessons about the permanence of love. First of all, spiritual gifts are temporary, verse eight. Spiritual gifts are temporary. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Now we look at this, we have this age and the age to come. Spiritual gifts are part of this age. This is the age in which we live, the church age. Someday they're gonna pass away. It doesn't mean the gifts are invalid. They're, they just mean that these gifts are for this age before Christ come again and will be with Jesus face to face. This age and the age to come. They're temporary. Secondly, our knowledge is incomplete. Our knowledge is incomplete. Verse 11 says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now, the only thing we can know for sure is that we don't know everything for sure. Anybody disagree with that? Just, just checking, okay. And Paul draws a contrast of a child to an adult. And he does three, it does three areas. This is childlikeness to adulthood. Speech, thought, and reasoning. He talks about speak, speaking as a child. As a child, we have limited vocabulary. We, we speak sometimes with in, incorrect grammar, or we misuse words, or mispronounce words, or we do whatever. I remember when Judy's great aunt was having dinner at her house, and, and she was choking on her food, and I jumped into action and performed the, the Heimlich maneuver. Retelling the incident later, Judy said, Mark did the Heimlich remover. Well, that's probably what it should be called. We laugh and we join the process, but we're talking about whether or not we use or misuse words or make them up or whatever that is. Speaking as an adult, we have a complete vocabulary. We use words correctly. We understand the use of words, pronounce them. Now, that doesn't mean a child speaking is wrong or invalid. They just haven't yet arrived or it's, it's incomplete. It has to grow still. So that's speaking as a child. Then there's thinking as a child. The illustration of childlike thought. We have a lot of misconceptions. You know, and whether it's believing in the, the tooth fairy or the, the, you know, the Santa Claus or whatever it might be, it, whatever it is that we have misconceptions as a child, we have misconceptions. When we're young, our parents know everything. When we turn 16, they lose their minds and they know nothing. That's just part of growing up. And so 
we kind of look at childlike thought and, and the parallel would be how children think, even about God. Um, Danny Dutton, age eight, had a, had a third grade assignment to explain God, okay? Now, if you were asked to do that, I don't know what you'd do. It'd be pretty hard, challenging, but he, he rose to the, to, the, to the task and this is what he wrote. This is explaining God according to the third grader. One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes these to put in place of the ones that die so there will be enough people to take care of things here on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think because they're smaller and easier to make. That way he doesn't have to take up his valuable time teaching them to talk and walk. He can just leave that up to the mothers and fathers. I think it works out pretty good. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on as some people like preachers and things pray at other times besides bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or TV on account of this. He hears everything, not only our prayers, there must be a lot of noise in his ears unless he has thought a way to turn it off. God sees everything and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. <laughs> so you shouldn't go wasting his time by going over your parents' head and asking for something they said you couldn't have. You should always go to Sunday school because it makes God happy. And if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. Don't skip Sunday school to do something you think will be more fun, like going to the beach. This is wrong. And besides, the sun doesn't come out at the beach till noon anyway. <laughs> if you don't believe in God besides being an atheist, you'll be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you like the camp, but God can. It's good to know he's around when you're scared of the dark or when you can't swim very good and you get thrown in a real deep water by the big kids. But you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. I, I figure God put me here and he can take me back anytime he pleases. And that's why I believe in God. Well, that's thinking as a child and, and we can listen to that and say, okay, well, I'm much more sophisticated than that and I think like an adult. And that's the parallel that Paul raises here. He says, our understanding and our reasoning is like a child's compared to an adult and someday it will be at that point, we're at the present time in that childlike state where we don't know everything. Someday when we get to eternity in the age to come, when Jesus comes back again and we join him, we will know everything. It'll be adulthood. Then he says reason as a child. We don't have the complete capacity to reason. As an adult, we have more capacity. Again, this does not mean children are ignorant or stupid. It means they are incomplete. Incomplete. That's where we are. When it comes to our love, our faith, God, theology, our knowledge that we have is not invalid. It's just incomplete. And that's why the Corinthians were elevating certain spiritual gifts. They were over-spiritualizing things. That, that doesn't mean that tongues and prophecy are childish. They just are incomplete. They will be replaced. Not now, but in the future. Gordon Fee writes, the problem is with the over-spiritualized eschatology, that's end times, as if tongues, the language of angels, meant that they were already partakers of the ultimate state of spiritual existence. This is not a condemnation of the gifts, it is a relativizing of them. Gifts do not belong to the future, but only to the present. They are as childhood in comparison with adulthood. 
And he goes not only on to correct the imbalance with regard to the gift, but he urges their proper use. He says, pursue love because that alone is forever. Now, it's not so much dealing with childishness versus growing up, but the difference between the present and the future. As the behavior of the child is appropriate to childhood, so the gifts are appropriate to the present life of the church. All the gifts. Letter C, our vision is distorted. Our vision is distorted. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known. We see in a mirror dimly. It's a reflected image, like looking into a mirror or a photograph. Have you ever looked at a picture of yourself and said, that doesn't look like me? Come on. My hand's up. Okay, yeah. What we really mean is, that doesn't look very good. But that's, that's okay. Somebody said, well, pictures don't lie. Well, you know, we'll play with that later. But we look at a photograph, we say, it's not really, it's not me. Well, a picture is incomplete. Why? Because we miss the liveness of the person that's present. And our present vision of God, as great as it is, is nothing compared to the real thing which is yet to be in the future. That's what he's saying. It's like the difference between a reflected image in a mirror and seeing a person face to face. It's the difference between knowing and really knowing. Letter D, the perfect will come, verse 10. Verse 10 says, when the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. What that means is the partial will be done away with. The perfect is, the word is used teleon from teleos, or complete and perfect. Now, some people thought, and, and uh, some people still do think that this refers to scriptures, and when the scriptures are complete in the canon of scripture, that um, it would make the need for tongues, interpretation, and prophecy pass away. Well, then you'd have to also take knowledge out of there, because that's included, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. So that, that's not a, a good interpretation of that. Not even dispensationalists or cessationists use this passage anymore to try to uh, bolster their position. Teleos means the end times when Jesus comes, at the completion of the age. And the point is, all spiritual gifts are part of the present church age. Therefore, today, our present time. When Jesus comes again, none of the gifts will be needed since we'll be in the very presence of Jesus, meeting him face to face. The only thing that transcends time, past, present, and future, that will not pass away when Jesus comes is love. Love. Love is the only overarching expression, timeless of God. E, love lasts forever. Love lasts forever. Love is permanent. Love is transcendent. The gifts belong to the now. Love transcends the now. So we've seen the importance of love. We've seen the character of love, the permanence of love. If one wants to practice and invest in something that lasts forever, invest in love, practice love. Love never ends. It's eternal. It's always. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Always. Let's pray. Father.